Well, shalom, everybody. A joy to be back with you. And on behalf of the whole team at LICC, thank you once again for all your support these many years for our work in empowering all God's people for everyday mission in the places we naturally find ourselves among the people we naturally meet day by day. What indeed has this magnificent passage to teach us about the scope of our mission in our Monday to Saturday workplaces and context? Well, first, a smidgen of personal background and testimony. As some of you know, I used to work in advertising, so you can trust every word you hear from me, and indeed, every picture you see. Actually, I spent 10 years working in advertising in London and New York, and I absolutely loved it. The pace, the creativity, the people, and I adored the lunches. But my testimony is this. I saw God do amazing things in that everyday mission field. Answer prayer on prayer, draw people to himself over time, heal someone on the 10th floor of a Madison Avenue advertising agency in the middle of the day, impact the very work itself, change the heart of a difficult client, guide me through career disappointment, character failure, and romantic catastrophes. And I learned that God can work anywhere through anyone in rich and various ways. And it's a joy, isn't it, to walk with God in our everyday workaday mission fields, wherever we find ourselves. Actually, I captured some of that learning in a book I wrote called Thank God It's Monday, which my mother regarded as the best book in the world. And uh, my mother was always right. What I wonder is God already doing in and through you in your workplaces or the places you spend your time in the week. What might be the scope of your ministry right where you are? So let's turn to Paul, the great international missionary, on his journey to take the gospel to Rome, Acts 27. It's a rich passage, isn't it? And there are parallels we might explore between Paul and Jonah, two men in boats in a storm, both charged with communicating God's message to the capital city of the dominant empire of their time. And there are parallels too between Paul in a storm on the Mediterranean and the disciples of Jesus in a storm on Lake Galilee. And this passage too is in some ways the climax of the book of Acts, a book that begins with God's promise that the disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so here we see God's sovereign hand ensuring that all the powers of chaos and darkness that the sea symbolized in biblical thought, could not prevent the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ getting to Rome, the very epicenter of the dominant superpower. God will achieve his purposes. And how encouraging that is for us in the United Kingdom, where at least 94 out of every 100 people don't follow Jesus. God will achieve his purposes. But this is also a story, a narrative set in a particular place at a particular time with particular people working out how to respond in their situation, as we all have to every day. And with biblical narratives, the first thing we're meant to do is to look carefully at what's going on in the story itself before we make connections with the wider context of the book or make connections with the Bible as a whole and the revelation of God in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. 
So here the Holy Spirit, working through Luke, has given us a tremendous amount of detail about this voyage. None of Paul's other journeys on land or sea get a tenth of the space. So what can we learn from this text about the scope of our mission, where we find ourselves day by day? Well, usually in Acts, we see Paul in short encounters with people in the marketplace or speaking on Mars Hill. But imagine for a moment that you are Paul in a boat, a workplace, with 273 people who don't know Jesus, sailors, soldiers, other passengers, for months. Just you and Luke and Aristarchus, three out of 273. That's 1% of the population. Here you are in a minority in a workplace, as many Christians are at work, or at school, or at uni, or at the school gate for a prolonged period of time. So you you build a good relationship with the centurion Julius, who gives you leave to see your friends, verse 3. And then one day, God gives you a, a message for the senior management team, the centurion, the pilot, and the owner of the boat. Now, you are by status a prisoner, and you are by trade not a sailor, but a maker of tents. But you are convinced that the decision that the professional sailors have taken will lead to catastrophe. So you speak up, and by doing so, you challenge three types of power. The centurion, the power of the state. The pilot, the power of expertise, the senior consultant, if you like. And the owner, the power of money or ownership. And they ignore your advice, as often happens in all kinds of contexts. Wisdom from above is not always accepted, is it? Most of us are not in charge. Others make decisions And we can perhaps see that it's not going to turn out well, but we still have to get on with it. Now, it's clear that Paul here has been given an insight into the future by God. He's been given a prophecy. And this message comes to Paul in a non-religious context, not in a fellowship group or a church, but out in the world. And notice that Luke doesn't say that Paul used any overtly religious language to communicate it. At this stage, Julius... The pilot, the soldiers, the crew obviously know that Paul is a follower of the way of Jesus. That's why he's under arrest. But Paul teaches us, doesn't he, that we don't always need to say, God says. And interestingly here, God gives Paul wisdom from above, ultimately for the benefit of the whole crew. After all, God does not need a boat to get Paul to Rome. He can whistle up a whale from the Atlantic and dump him on an Italian beach at the mouth of the Tiber. But God is concerned for Paul's companions and God offers information that will limit the commercial impact on the owner. Yes, if the boat stays in port, the ship might go down, but you won't lose the tackle, the cargo or the people. Well, does God care about the physical and material well-being of the organizations you're in and the people you work with? Well, yes, and it has always been so. This is a spectacular story we have before us, so let me give you a spectacular example. Colin was a production manager in a plastic extrusion molding factory, and there were no orders. The workbenches were silent, and the business was in serious danger of going under. So one day, Colin goes down into the moulding workshop, takes a chair, sits down by one of the benches, puts his hand on the work surface, and with the workers milling around around him, 
prayed that the bench would get busy again. And then he did the same thing for the second bench and the third, for all 12 benches in that workshop. That is pretty bold, isn't it? And he did it not one day, but six days, six working days in a row. And on the seventh day, the factory burned down. No, actually on the seventh day, 72 orders came in. Of course, God doesn't always act in such ways, does he? This is not a prosperity gospel. But throughout the Bible, we see the Lord's concern for our physical environment, our physical and emotional and mental well-being. From Eden on, in Eden, God creates a wonderful context for human beings to flourish in. Delicious, nutritious food, running water, a gorgeous environment, a plethora of, of wildlife to enjoy, purposeful work to be done, fellowship with him. Yes, humankind rebel, but God's desire to bless persists. In Genesis 12, God promises that through Abraham, the man of faith, all nations will be blessed. And blessing is never merely understood in spiritual terms. It encompasses every aspect of human life, food, family, friends, work, rest and play. See it in Jeremiah. God commands his people in exile to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So not only to pray for the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city of their enemies, but to seek it with all our hearts. So what is shalom? Well, yes, it is wholeness, fulfillment, yes, the spiritual welfare of the city, but also the the political, physical, mental, emotional, relational, ecological, and economic welfare of the city, or of the town, or of the street, or of the hospital, the office, the building site, the warehouse, the school, the hall you're in, the school gate you go to, the gym you frequent. And of course, work is a big part of making that a reality. But back to Paul. Paul's job is to speak up for the welfare of others, but he does not win the argument. Our job is to speak truth for the benefit of others. You're convinced the policy is wrong, the protocol misguided, the praxis dangerous, the judgment unfair, and it may not change. But speaking out may still be the right thing to do and important for the longer term, as we will see here. And so you set sail and you're Paul. What's the scope of your ministry now that you know that the boat is going down and you and everyone else with it. Well, I wonder what, uh, I wonder what you prayed for your workplaces and your fellow workers back in March 2020 when you could perhaps see the storm coming. Well, Paul's storm comes and it rages for days and the professionals do what they do. They follow best practice, quite right. They throw the cargo overboard, but it's not enough. And everyone despairs for life itself. And what do you do? This business is going down. This business is about to go into liquidation, if you'll excuse the pun. And you're going down with it. So in the midst of this terrible storm, with the boat heaving and the waves crashing and the sun blotted out from the sky and your body being lurched from side to side and your stomach in your cranium, do you have any space in your heart left for anyone else? Pressure often makes us self-focused, doesn't it? But Paul 
prays for everyone's mortal lives, not just their eternal lives. He intercedes holistically. He encourages them emotionally by telling them that not one of them is going to die. Men, he says, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, he doesn't remind them that they ignored his advice before to make them feel guilty, but rather to strengthen their confidence in what he is now saying. I was right before, so you can trust me now. And then he witnesses clearly to them, and he tells them the source of his extraordinary confidence. Verse 23, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Notice that the angel tells Paul that God has given him the lives of all who sail with you. It's obvious that Paul has been praying for the people in this workplace, for their physical rescue as well, no doubt, as for their eternal salvation. I wonder if we pray for the people around us. He isn't like Jonah, not bothering to pray for the sailors in his boat. He's not in a a team, in a catering business on the edge of bankruptcy, just praying, God, can I keep my job? He's praying for everyone. Uh, Vicky uh, is a respiratory physiotherapist who, in the middle of the pandemic, was assigned to an ICU which was overflowing with patients. She was doing 12-hour shifts for weeks. And one day she's standing there in full PPE, holding a young man's hand. The oxygen, oxygen blows on full blast, and she's silently praying that God would heal him and that God would save his soul. It's not the first time she'd done that, and it wouldn't be the last Not everyone got better, and uh, you often didn't know. People got moved. Anyway, a few weeks later, a friend asks her if she treated this particular man. And Vicky says, I'm not at liberty to disclose that information. Well, her friend said, he got better, and he's become a Christian. Take Vicky out of the ICU, and maybe that young man dies, dies and dies apart from Christ. Take Paul and his companions off the boat and maybe 273 people die in that storm. Take my friend Richard out of that business and the admin people don't get the salary rise they've been due for years. Valerie is a plumber and he's not just bringing people peace of mind and water that's running in the right places. He's bringing people the peace of Christ. Not so long ago he turns up at one man's house, a new client, in his usual, usual cheerful mood, but he notices the pain in the man's face. Are you okay? He asks him. And the man replies, I've been diagnosed with lung cancer. Can I pray, says Valerie, because God loves you. And he prays, and he can see peace flow into that stranger's face. Take you out of your workplace. Take you out of your front line. And maybe things aren't quite the same. Like Paul, we don't always choose our circumstances, but maybe we can choose whether we consciously, intentionally involve God there. We are stewards entrusted with our workplaces and our everyday front lines. So Paul brings encouragement. But interestingly, he doesn't name Jesus at this point, but he does make it clear that his God 
is the one who is guaranteeing their safety. What's he doing here? Well, he's simply bearing witness of God's action in his life. Does he lay out the whole gospel at this point? Well, apparently not. But might people be intrigued? Might they wonder if this God is real? Might they come to Paul and ask him about it then? Or might they wait to see if they survive, to see if this God's promise is true and then ask? And they do survive. We don't know. Here Paul is bearing witness, sharing what the good news means to him on this day. How did you put up with that bad-tempered boss? Well, my fellowship group prayed for me and her. How did you get that job done on time? Well, I I, I just asked God to help me because I just knew I couldn't do it. And sometimes people see things things in us that we don't. So it was in the middle of um, a wave of the pandemic and Vicky, the respiratory physio I mentioned earlier, had been doing 12-hour shifts for weeks, not getting a break, not getting much to eat or drink, swathed in PPE. The noise of the machine so loud that you had to shout to communicate with more than twice as many patients than the ICU ever held before, and all of them needing close attention. And of course, some of you know all about this. Relentless, exhausting work. At team meetings, she'd be honest, she'd share about how hard she'd been finding it. But then one day, a colleague said to her, Oh, Vicky, you're so inspiring. And Vicky was just flabbergasted. She'd actually been in tears pretty much every day but somehow she'd been inspiring. It's not about putting on a brave face, is it? But there was something about her. And I asked her, what was it? In a way, she didn't know, but she told me that every day before going into her 12 12 and a half hour shift, she'd prayed, Lord, give me what I need for this. And every day she'd listen to a particular worship song before getting to work. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, Some of the words are, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. Christ lives in us and shines through weakness, can shine through distress. And God had done something in her that made others see her as an inspiration. The reality is that the more we involve God, the richer our testimony becomes. The more we involve God, the richer our testimony becomes. So Paul encourages emotionally, he witnesses clearly, he strengthens them physically then by encouraging them to eat. He says, now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive, verse 34. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Well, We're meant to care for people's physical well-being. Of course, you know that. But in lots of less pressured situations, that may not be so obvious. The colleague, have you noticed, who hasn't been able to get away from the reception desk for four hours, the beleaguered mum at the school gate, the carer unseen at home, or the fellow student who perhaps finds themselves with 6,000 words left to write on the influence of Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophy on the music of One Direction. And it has to be emailed to the lecturer by 10 a.m. the following morning. Can I get you a sandwich, a coffee, a cold towel, a Coke, eight gallons of Red Bull? So then Paul does something which to us might seem odd in our politically correct times. He prays in public. He says grace in public, verse 35. Says he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. 
Then he broke it and began to eat. A while back, my wife was working in a hospital theatre, and one Sunday she got a strong intimation from God that something bad was going to happen the next day. So we prayed about being ready. And the following morning, the theatre teams were all called into the staff room to be informed that a colleague's six-year-old son had fallen out of a first-floor window and had died. And that the person who delivered the news said something like, and do pray for her. Now that is a startling enough thing to say in an NHS staff meeting. But then my wife said, let's do it now. And right there and then, she prayed in an NHS staff room with a mixture of Christians and people of other faiths and no faith. At that moment, she took a stand to say that in this unimaginable pain, there is a God who cares and we can share, we can share this with him. No one came up to her afterwards and complained. But Paul is not just giving thanks here, is he? He is actually modelling his faith in God's rescue. He's essentially saying, I am calm enough to eat. I believe it is worth eating because I am not going to die. So I'm going to need my strength. Eating becomes a sign of trust in God. So when he persuades them to eat, when they actually do eat, they're doing something that at some level is a step of faith. I trust enough in Paul's words to eat because maybe I'm not going to die. Paul invites them to live in line with his faith, to believe a little, to look to God, however thin their faith, however vague their grasp of who he is or what this God might do. But there's also something really important about the particular words Luke uses here. These are the same words he uses to describe Jesus breaking bread at the Last Supper and on the Emmaus Road. He took some bread and gave thanks to God. Then he broke it. And he took bread, gave thanks, to, and broke it and gave it to them. Exactly the same words. Paul is feeding on Christ here. How do we get through? We feed on Christ. And finally, Paul protects them practically. When the crew try to leave, he gives the centurion a piece of advice. Stop the sailors abandoning the ship. And this time, the centurion does exactly what Paul suggests. So here we've seen Paul under enormous pressure, as indeed some of you are. But even under this life-threatening pressure, Paul doesn't lose sight of the mission he's been called to. Do we, I wonder, have such a big, multifaceted vision for the missional impact that we can make in the boats that we're in, whatever the pressure? Do our children know that they are princes and princesses in the corridors and classrooms of their schools, sent by God to carry the fragrance of Christ and seek his kingdom there? Does the student in the university, the mother at the school gate, the barista in Starbucks, the labourer at the port, the executive in an office have such a rich vision, seeking the best for the people they meet and the organisations they're involved with, offering wisdom from above, praying for physical protection, witnessing clearly and taking prayerful, practical initiatives for the physical, emotional, spiritual welfare of all those around them. Is this the kind of vision we're encouraging one another in? Well, Paul was in a boat with a load of people, 275 people. What boat are you in? What are the challenges? What wisdom does God want to bless those people with? What's God doing there? What does he want you to do? And of course, you do not go alone. 
Acts 27 doesn't just give us a picture of the scope of our ministry. It gives us an insight into the faithfulness of the God who sends us. This God who sends with purpose, who grants favor among non-believers, who gives wisdom from above when wisdom beyond human computation is needed. This God who communicates whatever the barriers, however dark the day, however terrible the storm. This God who responds in prayer, making clear what he will do. This God who strengthens his people by word and by his presence. This God who keeps his promise. Not one purpose is lost. This God who fulfills his purposes. The gospel will be heard in Rome as God intended. This is our Lord. The God of Paul and Lydia, Mary and Martha, Colin and Vicky, and by astounding grace, your God and mine, Emmanuel. God with us in our workplaces, in our streets, our homes, our gyms, our classrooms, seeking to work multidimensionally through us for his glory, right where you are, and with you all the way. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the boats we're in for the workplaces, the front lines, the everyday context we find ourselves in. Lord, give us your wisdom from above for the very work we do and for the flourishing of our workplaces and front lines. Lord, give us eyes to see each colleague, each person we engage with on our front lines as you see them, with generous love, and help us indeed to celebrate them to serve them, to strengthen them, and to hold out the word of life to them as you lead. For the blessing of all and the salvation of many, to your glory may it be. Amen.